Hi, everyone. Thanks for checking out the Thrive Podcast. We are the Young Adult Ministry at Maranatha Bible Church, and we meet on Wednesdays at 730 in our Family Life Center. If you enjoy this podcast, we'd love for you to post it to your Instagram story and tag us at NBC Thrive on Instagram. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy. So thank you guys for coming tonight. As Ethan said, we're doing it a little differently today, so I hope everybody's okay with that. If you're not, well... Nothing's going to change, actually, until next week, so we'll see. Um, If you have your Bible, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 4. We're going to talk about today the importance of other people as it relates. Um, We do have a slide, though, here for the Halloween party, if that can be the next slide up. Do we have a slide for the Halloween party? Yes, nice. So October 26th, um, we have a very talented team of individuals working for a Halloween party, Um, By that costumes, it doesn't mean we're going to give you one. We want you to have costumes, so make sure to wear a good costume. It's going to be a really fun time. I've had a blast. Okay, we have two slides for it. So if one wasn't enough, here's the other. Um, There will be no puppies. But uh, So anyway, we'd appreciate you guys to come to that. They're a blast. Um, So if you have your Bibles, open up to Ecclesiastes 4. We'll be there, and we'll read uh, verses 1 through 3. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. So Solomon looks out, and he's going, and he's seeing injustice in the world, and he's seeing what's happening. And he sees the people who are in his life who are being hurt, who are being oppressed. And, you know, we all have people like that in our lives. You know, maybe it's that weirdo person who sits in class and is really quiet. You know, you don't want to talk to them because they're weird. You know, you don't want to talk to them. Or maybe it's that homeless guy that you pass on the side of the street every so often. And you're like, you know, he's oppressed, but I'm not really going to do anything because, you know, whatever. But we all have those people who are there oppressed by life. You know, and we kind of just walk past them, you know, it's not our responsibility, it's not something we should do, but Solomon sees those people, and you might too, you know, where you see those people in your life, or that you see in life, and you think, look at the tears of the oppressed, you know, nobody loves them, they're by themselves, they're lonely, they're, you know, afraid, whatever they are, and Solomon says, and nobody's there, nobody's comforting them, but what I think is so interesting, it doesn't end there, because you look, and he goes to the, like, next part, On the side of their oppressors, there was power, right? So we have the oppressed and we have the oppressor. It feels like a Marxist, uh, communist, you know, economics class. It's not. Um, But you have this dichotomous class conflict. No, I'm just kidding. Between the oppressed and the oppressor. And Solomon says, you know, you look at the oppressed and they're being super oppressed and nobody's helping them. You know, Marx would have agreed. Um, Marx wouldn't have agreed with this next part. But you have the oppressor, right, who on their side is power, but nobody's comforting them either. And I remember reading a, um, it was a book of the martyrs about people who had been martyred for their faith. And it was this woman who wrote after she had been suffered. And she was a Christian. Um, They asked her to recant Christ. She didn't. And so she was beaten every day. Um, And she was in jail. And I forget where this was. I tried for the life of me. I couldn't find it. She was beaten every day. And um, one day her oppressor walked in, the person who was beating her. And she realized, and she writes this, he was just as tired of beating me as I was of being beaten. And uh, it's weird. It's like, I, I always read that. and was like, what does that mean? You know, but this man 
you know, he was watched by somebody above him, right? He basically had to do it. And that person was watched by somebody else. And so when Solomon says this part in the verse, what he means is that if you have a hard time loving someone, you know, let's say, yeah, Christian, I know I should love oppressed people, but my boss or this person in school or, you know, my mom or whatever, you know, everybody's suffering. Everybody is going through something. And as we talk about the importance of others today, we're not, I mean, we will talk about, you know, positive reinforcement that others, but this is negative reinforcement, right? We see that people are going through tough stuff. We see that we are both um, sometimes the oppressor. We are the person who could make somebody's life easier, but we don't, or we intentionally make their life harder. But in the same time, there are people who are being oppressed, or maybe it's you being oppressed. How can we love them? How can we realize what's going on in their lives and in our lives? Um, we kind of recognize that we are kind of in the same spot as well. And Solomon says, but better than both is he who's not been born and seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. And so this leads us to our first point. Uh, we are not alone. Um, one of the greatest lies that we tell each other, or that we tell ourselves, is that you're the only one struggling with this. Um, I remember that I had a conversation with a friend. This was seventh grade, and I said, hey, man, I need to tell you something super personal. And, you know, I was just like, he's going to be like, you're the worst, you know. And I told him, he was like, oh, yeah, no problem, man. I, I, I have that too. I said, what? You know, I was shocked. I thought, it was just me. What is he doing actually having this problem? Well, the issue is that we kind of realize to ourselves, oh, we're not the only ones who are struggling with this. And the greatest deal we can tell ourselves is that we're alone. We're the only ones who can struggle with this. Um, but what this passage tells us is that from a, this point of view, we're not alone, right? There are people who are being oppressed in this life who are going through it, and there are people in this life who are oppressing and going through it too. And so all that to say, we're, we're not alone. Every, we are all struggling together, and we're going to go into a little bit more detail what that means. But next we see Ecclesiastes 4, 4 through 6, and Solomon says, Then I saw that all toil and skill and work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Full stop. <clears throat> the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Full stop. Uh, somebody put that in your Instagram bio, Ecclesiastes 4, 5. Um, okay, and then he says, then after that, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Um, whenever somebody asks me why Ecclesiastes was so confusing or, you know, Ecclesiastes isn't confusing, I would be like, explain that verse to me. Fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh, you know. Um, this book is crazy, but I really like it. Before we do that, I need to tell you guys a story. From the moment I was probably... 10 years old, I told myself, I will never buy a new car. Uh, number one, it's a bad investment for a kid my age. You know, it's 30,000 bucks. Let's say you can't pay the payments. Well, you can't drive half a car. You know, the bank takes it away or somebody takes it away. You know, if you can't make the payments. I was like, what a stupid idea for somebody. The moment you drive your new car off the lot, it loses half of its value right away. And so for me, I thought, who in their right mind would buy a new car? You know, I'll never do that. That's stupid. That's inane. That's dumb. But then what happened? Three of my friends bought new cars, right in a note row, boom, 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 right like that. And they must have had some thing they were new together. And all of a sudden, I'm driving in my friend's car, and I'm sitting, and the seat's real nice, and it's not cracked, and they have a seat warmer, and the, the, you know, the window thing works to raise and lower the window, and their car's not rusting. What's that like to drive a car that doesn't rust? And all of a sudden, you know, their brakes don't squeal every time they click on them, and all of a sudden, I'm like, I'm going to buy a new car. I need a new car. Now, what happened, right? 
Did, I, did Christian McCartney change? No, I started comparing myself to others. And what we have in this, cha- in this little chapter part here is that somebody is comparing themselves to others. He says in verse 4, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his, of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Solomon says, you know, when you're comparing yourself to others, that's when it starts to get, you know. For 10 years, Christian was happy with his used cars until he started driving in nice new cars. He's like, oh, maybe I should get one of those. And contentment is what's going to be the key here, and that's going to be our next point. Contentment is king because we realize when we compare ourselves to others, right, we're talking a holistic view. Again, negative reinforcement. We shouldn't be looking at other people and then trying to apply that to our lives. You know, what we should do, what we should drive, what we should have, what we should wear. Solomon says that all your toil and skill from work, a lot of it comes from the fact that you're just trying to be better than the next guy. Oh, well, they have a new car, I need a new car. They have an iPhone 14, I need an iPhone 14. They have this, I need this. And so you go, just, just try to get to the top, and you never win. Um, you've probably heard cash is king. Solomon is literally saying, no, contentment is king, you know. You can never have enough money. They say they talked to John D. Rockefeller, who is the richest man adjusted for inflation that um, ever existed on earth, the oil tycoon. And they said they came up to him and said, um, how much is enough? You know, I think something crazy. He was, he'd have like a trillion dollars by today's standards of money. They said, how much is enough? And does anybody know what he said after that? Just a little more. Just a little more. You know, I just, I, I just could have a little more, right? This man had total iron grip. On the, on the oil production, right? Just a little more. And so the th- funny thing about money is that you can never have enough money. And you don't believe me, maybe that's fine. But you can always be content with no matter how much money you have. And you're like, you know, that stupid guy, he's sitting down. What does he know? He doesn't know anything. Sure. Well, Solomon's going to give us a story about a man who doesn't believe that contentment is king and that money will solve his problems, and he gives it here. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, see that there? His eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Um, What a short story about a man who just works, um, about a person who just in their life is not fulfilled with anything except working, about working, about working. You may know people like that, or you might yourself be a person like that who you just don't have enough, right? And you're just, you talk to a friend who's like super poor, and then they talk to you, and you're like, you're not poor at all. Like, what's your deal, right? They just assume that they're poor, and they're, they're not at all. I have a friend like that, and he's like, I only have $18,000. I'm like, $18,000? What's that like? You know, oh, that, you guys are all rich, I guess. But um, <clears throat> that all to say, right? It's because that he, in his mind, had already had this, like, internalized, you know, his idea of, you know, I'm, like, poor, I'm poor, right? And he was never satisfied with what he had. It wasn't enough, it wasn't enough. And there's a part in Ecclesiastes 5, 10 through 11, and I don't think I wrote this down, but this is a phenomenal verse, okay? If you're going to memorize a verse tonight, memorize this. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, right? We got that from the John D. Rockefeller, right? He loved money, he wasn't satisfied by money. Nor he who loves wealth with his income, this also is vanity. Memorize this too. When goods increase, they increase those who eat them. And what advantage has the owner but to see them with his eyes? You know, I love that verse, and you should memorize it. It is so applicable. Because if I have a lot of money, what's the first thing I need? A big house, right? Heated driveway, big house. You know, I have a big house. 
But what, am I going to drive my four Taurus up the driveway? No, I need a nice car. I'm going to get a Rolls Royce. You know, I have a Rolls Royce. Oh, but who's going to come? Somebody might be able to steal and hotwire my Rolls Royce and drive it away. I need a gate. I need a fence. Draw it all around. Then people come to my house and it's buried. No, I need furnishings for that house. Then I need to pay all the electric and the gas and the utilities and all that. People want to come over, have a party. I'm not going to serve them stupid food. Look at my house. You know, I'm rich. I'm going to give them all this stuff. Solomon says, the more goods you have, they increase those who eat them. The more stuff you have, the more stuff you have to pay for, right? I don't have insurance on my car, but if I got a new, I don't have, no, I have insurance. I don't have like the type where somebody hits you, they pay for the damages to your car. No, I'm insured. What's it called? The liability, maybe? Is that it? Liability. Okay, I don't have liability. I have insurance legally. I have, I have you know, this is on a podcast. I have insurance. Um, but the thing is, right, if somebody crashes my car, big deal, right? I'll buy a new one, 2000 bucks, you know, whatever. But if I have a nice car, I need insurance. And so what's that mean is Solomon says that when you increase goods, when you increase money, when you increase income, it increases those who eat them, which what does that mean? It means that like all of a sudden your expenses and your bills and everything else increase. And what advantage has the owner to see them with his eyes? How many of you have a mobile banking service on your phone? Okay. Wow, that's like 98% of us. That means at any time, right now, you could pull out your phone, look at your phone, and see how much money you have. And Solomon says, that's it. <laughs> you pull out your phone, you see how many zeros are there? Great right? That's it. Yeah, that's it. What advantage have you over somebody else who's content but to see that, right? Does that do anything for you? Does that make your life 2.0, right? You think Elon Musk just like jumps out of bed now in the morning because he's rich? No, he's still tired. His job still sucks probably. He still has issues, right? The money issue almost doesn't matter. Solomon says if you love money, you're not going to be satisfied with it. Contentment is king, and that's what this man is doing. When he dies, he dies, he doesn't have a friend. He doesn't have a family. He doesn't have people on whom he can count. As soon as everything dies, he goes to, he goes to rest. You know, Solomon says, that's vanity. That's worthless. Um, this doubly reinforces how important contentment is. Thirdly, we're going to see actually how important others are. And this is going to be in verses 9 through 12. I love this passage here. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how could one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Um, you'll hear that passage often like at weddings, you know, you know, you know God's tying us together or something like that, which is, which is right. But this passage here is relating to others, right? It's not just you in a romantic relationship, your boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife or whatever. This is relating to us being, us being together. And that leads us to our third point. We are better together. You don't believe that? You know, I don't know what to say. We are, I swear to you, we are better together. That's, that's referenced out throughout the whole passage. Just like in the story, life isn't good if you're trying to do it by yourself. A lot of us might be in a spot where we say, you know, I recognize the value of friendship. I recognize the value of other people, but gosh, I'm just too busy, and it's just so much work, and I just don't have enough time, and it's a lot of emotional effort to put forth and just listen to somebody, you know, chatter on forever, you know. You might be in that spot, or you might be in a spot where, you know, you just have been hurt a lot of times by friendship, and you're like, yeah, that's good, that's cute. You know, that's cute you're saying that, Christian, but you don't know. I've been hurt horribly by friends. I've been hurt by relationships badly. I understand that. But Solomon says, 
This having other people is so important as it relates to our Christian walk. Um, and people are going to help you make it through hard times, you know. He says here, you know, if you fall into a pit and you're by yourself, good luck, right? But if you fall in a pit and somebody else is there, they can help you, you know. Uh, Mike Dumois said, you know, guys are so happy to hear this one where, you know, one can lie alone, you know, he can't keep warm alone, he needs some girl to keep him warm at night. No, that's not what it means, you know. That means that as, as people, we need each other. And, it's, and even the more the better, right? A threefold cord is not quickly broken. We need each other. And that's what we're going to see as we talk about the importance of other. We cannot make it through this life, the Christian life, anything if we don't have each other. There's a reason when Jesus was on earth, he didn't say, hey, I've got, I'm good, right? He had 12 disciples. He had 12 of his closest friends who were there with him every step of the way. Um, and that's going to help us. So finally, we're going to read verses 13 through 16 to kind of finish up this chapter. Again, some rando story that I'll try to explain. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who, knew longer no, who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who is to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, of all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after a wind. Now, that story is super confusing. And so I was reading some commentary, you know, what does that mean? So we have an old king. He's old and stupid, right? We have an old king. And then we have a young dude who isn't a king, right? He's just some stable boy, let's say. And he was poor, right? Wasn't the son of a king. And we have these two characters here. But this old king, who actually is noble, has noble blood, right? This guy is bad. He doesn't know how to take advice. He's old. He's foolish. He's out of, the, he's out of date. There's this young guy who these people are like, oh my gosh, this guy is smart. Yeah, he's, he's poor right now, and he's not really king stock, but he's good, right? And this guy goes up from stable to the throne, from prison to the throne, and Solomon says, and there was no end of all the people whom he led. He says, but those who come after will not rejoice in him anyway. And what does that mean? It means that even when you're in a bad situation, and then you're in a good situation, if you don't, uh-oh, if you don't get compared to the good things that are going on or to the bad things that happened, you'll never get to a point where you're actually content in life if you're constantly comparing, right? We talked about how contentment is king, comparison is death. And there's some times where it's good to remember where you were brought out from. You know, some of you are going through a hard time. Well, imagine if you're going through this hard time without Jesus. You know, some of us are going through a time where we're like, gosh, I'm so busy. Imagine if it was all for naught and you're like, great, I'm going to just die at the end of this. What's the point, right? Um, if we remember our lives in the scheme of how our lives used to be, right? And that's what Solomon's saying. When you're looking at this story here, you're like, these people should be grateful. They finally have a king who cares to them and listens to them and understands, right? But they won't. Because he says in the time that'll come after, uh, they won't rejoice in him because it'll just be same old, same old. It's like that, um, um, it's like that saying, good times create weak men, Weak men create hard times. Hard times create good men, and good men create hard, good men create good times. Right, and then the cycle starts over again. When you have good times, you have weak men. So goes the saying. And what does that mean? Is that like once this good man, once this good king creates a good time, you just kind of forget. You forget how old, 
how old things used to be. And now, how does that relate to us, right? Wow, Christian's given us a king lesson. If I were King Charles, I'd really be holding on to this, right? I'm not about that. What I mean by that is as, as contentment, as contentment relates, as comparison relates, we're going to do a lot better in our lives if we stop comparing to the way things used to be and we start being content in the way things are now and trusting what God has for us. So Ecclesiastes is confusing. We've gone through this book. You guys are like, what, what are we doing? Um, so we're going to kind of go through it practically. The first thing that we can take from this um, is that we are not alone. We're not alone by anybody here. We are surrounded by people who care for us and we care for them. Um, we just don't tell each other. It's important for us to tell each other what we're going through. Um, it says in 1 John, confess, I think it's 1 John, confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed, right? There's an active element of confession that we do, not to the priest, not to Jesus, although we do it to Jesus and we do it to godly men, but we do it to each other as well. We, we have this relationship with each other where we're honest and when we're vulnerable, and that, that way we can be healed. This doesn't does just help you, it helps people around you who are struggling. Um, secondly, we remember that contentment is king, we're never going to be satisfied if we're consistently comparing what we have to others, right? So we get that from Ecclesiastes and how we relate to others. And thirdly, we remember that we're better together. Not only do people help commiserate with us, right? Not only they're like, oh, life sucks. Yeah, man, life sucks. You know, that's not all they're there for. They're there to help us lift us out of that, Solomon says. Um, and to end tonight, we're going to finish in 1 Corinthians 12, 24 through 26. And you don't have to turn there. I believe it's on the screen here. Um, Paul's talking here about the body of Christ, which all of us are a member of the body of Christ. He says, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Okay, listen, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Right, and what does that mean? It means that as Christians, Let's say you're a hand, and you're a foot, and you're an eye, and you're hair, or whatever. You know, I don't think hair is a body part, but let's just imagine. Right? We're all a part of the body of Christ here. Um, and if you're hurting, and I don't know, I'm suffering. That's what Paul says, right? We're part of the same body. We're part of the body of Christ. If one member suffers, we all suffer together. If you're suffering in the body of Christ today, and you're not you know, being honest about it, you know, I shouldn't say being honest. If you're not being open about that. You know, you're afraid, you don't want to be hurt, you don't want to be a burden, you don't want to throw your problems on other people, whatever it may be. If that's you in this room, right, but Paul says, if one member suffers, I'm suffering too. I just don't know why I am, right, because I can't pray for you, I can't help you, I can't be an encouragement, right? Satan can't get rid of God's power, right, but what does he do? He convinces you that you can't accept God's power in your life, Right? God offers forgiveness and healing from sin and from things like that. Well, maybe, but not for me. Right? And why do we do that? Because we don't believe it. Right? The first thing Satan did in the, in the garden, right? he distorted the truth. He still does the same. God might be able to do that for other people, but he doesn't do that for you. God might be able to heal other people, but doesn't do that for you. Now remember how it was the first time you talked to somebody about this? This is how it's going to be again. And what, is God, what does Paul say here? He says that when you suffer, I'm suffering too. When you're in a hard spot, I'm in a hard spot too. We need other people. This isn't just a cute, you know, aphorism. Oh, other people are great. Only when you're happy and life's great and you have six figures. No, right? When life sucks, other people are there. And that's what, Psalm, or that's what Paul is saying here. 
that the members may have the same care for one another. And it's not all bad. You know, yeah, if one member suffers, we all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. It's like your body, you know, and that's the whole point he's trying to make. Just because you're going through a tough time, there are people who want to go through that with you. And if you're going through a good time, you know, you don't have to be like, oh, I don't, shouldn't say anything. You know, I'm, I'm fine, but, you know, what's the deal, you know? That's okay, right? People are going to be happy if you're happy. If you have a good story, they want to hear that. We're part of the body of Christ. So whereas Solomon kind of sees these fragments coming in, he's like, I think other people are good. I think, you know, we should be content, you know, and he doesn't understand. We have the, bi- we have the New Testament where Paul is writing that we have each other. We have each other when we're feeling bad, and we have each other when we're feeling good. We need each other, and we all work better if we work together. So let's pray. Uh, Dear Lord, we're just so thankful that we have the opportunity um, to be a part of your body. God, we know that we didn't deserve that. We don't earn that. God, you give it to us as a gift. And what should we be doing to be doing the works of God? You know, God, we believe in him whom he has sent. We believe in Jesus Christ. And the fact that his death, burial, and resurrection was the entryway into a life with you on earth and a life with you forever in heaven. And God, we realize life is tough. Even when we're saved, even when we're Christians, you know, life is tough. But we also realize that there are people who are in this room who are struggling that we can help even when life is tough for them because you have said that we are all members of the same body, the church. And we're so thankful for that, God. We're thankful that we have the ability to help with others. We're thankful that if one suffers, that we suffer, God, or else we'd never know. And we're thankful that if one is rejoiced and is honored, that we can rejoice and be honored, God. And we're thankful for that. More than all that, God, we pray that you would give us the understanding and the discernment to be able to rely on other people who are Christians, to be able to have the tough conversations or have the good conversations, God, that we need to have in order to um, be closer and closer conformed to the image of your Son. We pray that this would be a blessing to the people in this room tonight. In your son's name, amen. You're dismissed.